a young police cadet was taking his final exam for the police academy. And he was confronted with this question. You are on patrol in the outer city when an explosion occurs in a gas main on the nearby street. On investigation, you find that a large hole has been blown in the road and there is an overturned van nearby. Follow me? Okay. Inside the van, there is a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. And you recognize the woman as the wife of your police chief, who is away on business. A passing motorist stops to offer assistance, and you realize he is a man who is wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house shouting his wife is expecting a baby and that the shock of the explosion has made the birth imminent. Another man is yelling for help. Having been blown into a nearby pool due to the explosion and he cannot swim. Describe in a few words what actions you would take. (laughs) The young man thought for a moment, picked up his pen and wrote, I would take off my uniform and mingle in the crowd. (laughs) That's a kind of a funny story, but I I will tell you that in some of my past law enforcement hiring interviews, I have used crazy questions just like that to get an idea of the thought process of a candidate. I wanted to know how they, how they thought. But this story also got me to thinking about the uniform. The uniform makes a police officer distinctive from other people. They stand out in a crowd. And wearing that uniform carries with it certain expectations and responsibilities. In other words, the conduct of an officer is to be consistent with the clothing they wear. Last week, the Apostle Paul told the Colossian believers, and us as well, that because we died with Christ and are alive in Him, we are to throw off our old dirty clothes, we are to discard our old sinful ways, 
we are to toss out that old self-centered person that we used to be and we are to put on something new. Something consistent with who we are in Christ. Something that corresponds to our new life and our new character. This morning, with the old stuff put off, Paul describes what needs to be put on. Okay? What needs to be put on. So if you have your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 3, and we will pick up where we left off, beginning with verse 12. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 12. We are told, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. So also should you. This passage begins with some deep spiritual truth. We have been chosen by God. We are holy and we are beloved. As believers in Christ, we are chosen by God. Chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul says in the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. And it's the same thing that Peter explains in his first letter. Before there was time, before anything was created, before the world came into existence, well before you were born, you were God's chosen. In His foreknowledge, God picked us out from among others. Before we were anything, before we could do anything right, before we could do anything wrong, God already knew us, and in spite of us, He chose us. This is so mysterious. And in truth, 
it's part of a spiritual paradox. It's part of a paradox. The Bible clearly teaches that God chose us. But it also teaches that we chose Him. If I was asked, did God choose us or did we choose Him? My only answer would be yes. That's the only way I could answer it. Yes, I know this is a head-scratcher. It's a paradox that prompts a lot of questions. But be that may, understand it or not, it is the Gospel truth. In this passage, we are told that God picked us out. He chose us. And because He chose us, we are holy. Now, holy simply means, simply means to set apart. That's what it means. Holy means to set apart. And it makes complete sense that God would set apart those He has chosen. Right? It makes sense that God would set apart those He has chosen. Our lives have been set aside by God. We are holy. We are set apart. We are not our own. Instead, we belong to God. And this is because we are His beloved. Beloved means that we are the special objects of God's love. And trust me, it's not because any of us are lovable. I'm looking at you, Alan. There is nothing in us deserving of His love for us. And yet, and it's a big yet, God sent His Son to us to die for us so that Christ might live His life through us. God chose us from among others before the world was ever formed. He set us apart for Himself. We are His beloved. And Paul says, because of that, we should put off the dirty clothes of our old, sinful, self-centered life, and we are to put on the clothing that expresses who we really are in Jesus Christ. Now, I think that for a lot of us, our clothing is often an expression of who we are. Is that fair to say? 
Our clothing is an expression of who we are. And I know that by looking at me, you can tell I am all about high fashion. I am all about high fashion. It's obvious. And I figure I am about a dozen or so sit-ups from looking just like a male model. Looking just like Brad Pitt. Just a dozen or so sit-ups. It's uncanny. What are you laughing about, Travis? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. But in all seriousness, in a roundabout way, is Paul is saying that just like our clothing is often an expression of who we are, likewise, our conduct should express who we are in Christ. This morning, we are talking about duds from above. High fashion clothing. True high fashion. Revealed in our conduct. Revealed in how we deal with each other. So with that said, The first of the duds that Paul mentions are compassion and kindness. Compassion and kindness, which seem to me to go together. And let me explain. In this context, compassion refers to tenderness. Tenderness, describing a heart that is tender to the touch, meaning a person feels the slightest touch of another person's need or misery. And in response to that touch of the heart, a person is moved to kindness. For kindness is the action that reveals compassion. When I was thinking about this, and this is a great this is a great story. When I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the story of a 4-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly man who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the old man crying on his porch, the little boy went up to him, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother asked the boy what he had said to his neighbor, The little boy said, nothing. I just helped him cry. 
I just helped him cry. That's an example of compassion revealed in kindness. Now, I understand that we are all different emotionally. I get that. But in Christ, we are all able to express compassion and kindness in our own unique way. Maybe it's just sitting with someone like this child. I've done that many times. Maybe it's an encouraging word, a smile, a card, a text. Maybe it's an offer to help in some way. But I would encourage each of you to deliberately look for those opportunities to share compassion and kindness to one another. And if you don't see those opportunities, then I fear you are too focused on yourself. Which brings us to the next piece we are to put on. In his list, Paul brings up humility. Which means lowliness of mind. That's what it means. Lowliness of mind. And this this speaks about a person who has a right view of themselves in relation to others. And just for clarification, humility does not mean that a person thinks poorly of themselves or dumps on themselves. Paul is not telling anyone to think less of themselves. But rather... To think of themselves less. Do I need to repeat that? Paul is not telling anyone to think less of themselves. He is telling them to think of themselves less. Meaning in our relationships We are to put others first. That's what he's saying. Now as we continue through our list of duds, Paul mentions gentleness. Gentleness is a familiar word that can also be translated as meekness. And it might come as a surprise to some, but it does not mean mild-mannered. Instead, it means, see Alana's here, you're going to relate to this. Instead, it means strength under submission. Strength under submission. 
For example, can you bring up that next photo? Can you see that behind me? For example, this word has been used to describe a powerful horse that has been broken. The horse has great strength. It could break loose if it really wanted to. But it's submissive to the one who leads it. It's submissive to the one who rides it. In the same manner, we too are to be under control. And you're not going to like this. Willing to give up our power. Willing to waive our rights. I'll hear about that one later, I'm sure. Willing to suffer loss for the sake of another person. That's strength under submission. And it's the idea here behind gentleness. If you notice, patience... Patience is next. And this word in the Greek literally means long-tempered. Long-tempered as opposed to being short-tempered, which we talked about last week. In our relationships, Patience is a virtue that describes a person who restrains themselves and refuses to fly off the handle when faced with a difficult circumstance or a difficult person. You bring the other picture up? Next one. Okay. I'll describe it. (laughs) Have you ever seen a puppy with a very large dog? It's cute. The puppy yaps at the old dog, climbs on top of the dog, nips at his ears, nips at its tails, and all the time that big old dog who could bite the puppy in half if it wanted to, remains patient. It restrains itself. And it does not retaliate. That's the picture. That's an example of patience. It's self-restraining in nature. Giving others the time to change and the room to grow. Very closely related to patience 
is bearing with one another. Bearing with one another literally means to hold back. To hold back. And it essentially speaks of endurance or tolerance. Or we might say, putting up with people who are difficult. You understand what I'm saying? Don't look, at, don't look over here. Yeah, putting up with those people who are difficult. You know what I'm talking about. Now, this does not mean that we tolerate bad behavior. Right? That's, that we shouldn't. Instead, we are speaking about putting up with what we perceive. As a, as a weakness or a fault in someone else. And for the sake of harmony and unity, we are to hold back when we are tempted to judge. We're to hold back when we are tempted, and it's a good temptation, to judge. I was thinking about this, and to me it seems that we, referring to all you, not me, referring to you, we tend to have difficulties with people who may not see things and may not do things the way we see and do things. And I'm not talking about those moral absolutes that are clearly spelled out in the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I know that people can get set in their own ways. They have a certain way of doing things. They have always done these things a certain way. In fact, their way is the right way. And everyone else should do it their way. And when it doesn't happen that way, it's perceived as a weakness or a fault on their part. And it opens the door for harsh judgment against the other person. Am I right? Paul says, hold back your judgment for the sake of unity and harmony. That's what he's saying. Now we come to forgiving each other. And I think C.S. Lewis, you know that name? I think C.S. Lewis summed this whole thing up really well. He said, Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea. 
until they have something to forgive. C.S. Lewis was right. And we know he is right. And still, we are commanded to forgive one another. When we are wronged, even when our complaint and our hurt is absolutely valid, okay? It's valid. We are to forgive. We are to cover the wrong of another with our mercy and grace. That's what we're doing. We are to cover the wrong of another with our mercy and grace, just like the Lord forgave us. Paul had to go there, didn't he? Before the... He just shuts us right down. Does that mean we can't air our complaints? That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, we are told in the Bible, if we have something against someone else, we are to go to that person and try to resolve it. We should say how we feel. We should explain how we have been hurt. But having done that, we are to forgive just like the Lord forgave us. And I want you to think about that for a moment. When considering the staggering, the staggering debt that the Lord forgave us, it's really not that hard to forgive another for a much smaller debt. And also think about this, and this is where I'm starting to meddle. It is the habit of man to forgive only when the offending party solemnly promises to never do the wrong against you again. But God forgave you knowing fully well that you would sin against Him over and over and over again, sometimes in the exact same way. Am I right? It is the habit of man, when wronged, to not forgive unless the offender agrees to bear all the penalty for the wrong done. But God bore all the penalty for the wrong you did against Him. Think about that. It is the habit of man even when forgiveness is offered 
to keep the offender at a distance. To place the offender at a lower level or an inferior status. I've forgiven you, but... But God's forgiveness is so complete to you that He adopted you as His very own child and placed you in an intimate relationship with Him. Think about that. Tell me in Christ how can we not forgive one another? Tell me. In Christ, how can we not forgive one another? Christ is both our model and our motive for forgiveness. Paul says, take off the rags of anger and wrath and the words which come with it and the excuses and the justification we give for it Put off the old sinful and self-centered ways and put on the duds from above. The clothing that Christ modeled for us. He modeled this. Compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another, and forgiveness. It's the kind of conduct that expresses who we are in Christ. Put it on. Now in verse 14, Paul ties it all together and he says, Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Considering all that we have looked at thus far, Paul says to put on love, which is the foundation that binds them all together in perfect unity or staying with the picture of clothing, the picture of fashion, the power of love is the belt that holds everything together, that ties everything together. It's almost as if Paul is saying, You know all those duds I just talked to you about? Well, here's another way to say it. Just love one another. Let's keep it simple. 
if need be? Just love one another. If you really love, you are going to have compassion. You are going to be kind. You are going to be humble. You are going to be patient. You are going to be forbearing. You are going to be forgiving. We got that? Then beginning with verse 15. Paul moves beyond our lives as individuals and transition to our lives as a church, as a church body. And he explains how we ought to function as a body. He tells us, let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In this passage, Paul is describing what church should be like when we come together. And I want you to notice right off the bat that both of these verses, both of these verses begin with the little word, let. Do you see that? Let. Meaning, we have to allow this. We have to allow it. This is something we are to do. It's on us. It's on us. And he begins by saying that as a church body, we have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. That word rule is an interesting word. And the idea behind it is that peace is to act as an umpire. Peace is to act like an umpire among believers. Baseball fans... We all got baseball fans. Anybody baseball fans in here? Baseball fans know that the person in the black suit who stands behind the catcher is the umpire. Right? And that person makes the difficult calls during the game. The umpire is supposed to be calm, cool, and collected and in control, even when things seem to be out of control. I think maybe Paul brings this up because there are times 
when compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience and forgiveness, you get the idea, takes a back seat in the church body. Not everybody in the church plays by the same rules. Conflict and strife can raise its ugly head and as a result, we need an umpire in our hearts who shouts, Peace! Peace! In the context of relationships within the church, you and I are to allow the peace of Christ to be the umpire, to call the shots in our lives and also call the shots in the church so that in the end, despite our differences, despite our differences, we are all seeking the same thing. Unity and harmony. And go figure. We're already on the same side. We're in Christ. And then Paul tosses in and be thankful. In light of the fact that we do not deserve a single thing, Be thankful for the things that God has done in your life. And when you are, it's amazing how peaceful you might become. Paul continues in verse 16 and says that once again, we are to let, okay? We are to allow the Word of Christ to dwell within us. We have to do that. It's on us. That word dwell means to be at home. That's what it means. To be at home. And the idea is that we are allow the Word of God to settle down in us and to be comfortable in us. That requires time and effort. Sorry. Deliberate time and effort. Being the Word should be a daily Christian activity where each of us in the body of Christ are involved in it. Paul explains that we are to talk about the Word with one another. We are to teach and challenge one another. And when necessary, with the Word, and in love, correct one another. Who we see straying off course. We are to be in the Word of God. And another way by which we may experience and express the Word is through a variety of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs whose focus is on the truths of God. And let me say, 
that just because a song may be identified as a Christian song does not mean it is biblically correct. So be careful. Read the lyrics. For you have no more right to sing a lie than I do as your pastor to preach a lie. All right? You have no right to sing a lie. I have no right to preach a lie. Now in verse 17, Paul brings this all together by directing our focus on one single point. Verse 17. We got it? It's up there. Okay, good. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. If you say you are a Christian and you don't live like it, you're going to confuse a lot of people. Especially people in the church. In word or deed. In whatever we do, we are to do it in the name of the Lord. When I was a teenager, a couple years ago, just a couple, when I was a teenager, living under my parents' roof, occasionally, my father would tell me before I went out, Remember whose name you carry. He would tell me that. Remember whose name you carry. Now what did he mean by that? My last name is not a royal name. It's not a name for the history books. There's, there's nothing special about my name as far as I can tell. But what my father was saying was that I represented someone other than myself. I represented someone other than myself. I also represented him. I carried his family name. And what I said and what I did would be a reflection on my dad. 
on his character, on his reputation. In essence, my father was saying, remember whose son you are. Remember whose son you are and whose name you carry. If you are a Christian, then you get the privilege to carry the name of Jesus Christ. He carried your cross. You get to carry His name. He carried your cross. You get to carry His name. And because you carry His name, a family name, you have the responsibility to carry it well. To honor Him. To dress up in the duds from above. Which reveals your new life and your new character in Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. Father, I pray that what was said by me was pleasing. I pray, Lord God, that what was heard made sense, was received well, even convicting. Father, Jesus carried our cross. At the very least, we can carry your name. Father, give us a passion for your word. Give us a zeal for the things of God. Help us to wear the duds from above. Help us to express a conduct that reflects who you are in us. May you be honored and glorified in what we say and what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I had made mention of a passage in John chapter 11. Where, where, where Jesus heals Lazarus. Remember that? Oh, that's good. You remembered my sermon. That's so good. I'm so happy. Yes, yes. Jesus comes on scene. Lazarus had been in the tomb for how many days? Four. Four days. In Greek, he stinketh. Right? That's, that's what Martha and Mary... Lord, he's been there four days. He's, he's going to reek. He's going he's to smell. And what does Jesus say? Remove the stone. Remove the stone. So they removed the stone. 
that was at the entrance of the cave where Lazarus was buried. And then Jesus prays to the Father. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Right? And Lazarus is all wrapped up in burial clothing. And he's doing the bunny hop, I'm guessing. Come out of the out of the tomb. I don't know how else he can't walk, so he's doing the bunny hop. Or he's levitating. He's doing the bunny hop. And then Jesus says this. Unbind him. Let him go. Now we talked a little bit last week about here you had this man, Lazarus. He has now a new life, right? He was dead, now he's alive. But he was still wearing the old clothing. He was wearing the clothing of a dead man. Right? That's what he was wearing. The clothing of a dead man. And Jesus says, get those things off of him. He's not dead, he's alive. Are you following me? This, this is what I want to talk about, though. That's why the church is so important. Did Jesus say, Lazarus, take off your clothing? Take off the old, old garments? The grave clothes? Did He tell Lazarus to do that? No. It was those around Lazarus. That's who Jesus was talking to. The others. Take those grave clothes off of him. Give him something new to wear. Lazarus couldn't do that himself. Others had to do that for him. Isn't that what we're for? To encourage one another? To challenge one another? to help, to love one another, to show compassion and kindness and patience and forbearance, to forgive one another, maybe confront one another. That's what this is all about. I love, I love you people. We should love one another. That's what Paul would say. Everything I've said, love one another. Why? Because God first loved you. Let's just keep it simple. God first loved you. So you can love one another. That's what I'm asking this morning. I don't know where you are with regards to your relationship with Him. But maybe you're here this morning and it's like, man, I don't know where I stand with Him. I'd love to talk with you. If not, if not today, we, we can schedule something. I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Let me know. If not today, tomorrow after church, let me know.
Or maybe this morning you just need prayer. You just need prayer. I would love to pray with you. So as the the music folks come on up, as the music is played, if you feel so moved that you need some prayer, then just be obedient to Him. He loves you more than you'll ever know. Go ahead.